the data would su suggest a chance of about 11% of that patient having a reaction with Moderna, 3.1% with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, and the Oxford-AstraZeneca represented a 4.1% risk. Welcome to the Aesthetics Mastery Show. I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. Hi, I'm Miranda Pierce. And today we've got a very important show for you. It's all about our results from our vaccine filler survey. It's the largest survey of its kind that I've come across, and it's got some really interesting results I can't wait to share with you. Give us a like if you are excited to hear the results and also show your support for the channel, which we really appreciate, and drop your questions down below as we go through. So first of all, this is very important because uh, although we know there's this potential side effect of filler with the vaccine, um, we need to know quantities and amounts and risk factors. And this is really what I wanted to try and achieve with that survey, which is particularly before most of the UK go back to injecting, we have a narrow window where we can get data from clinicians and use that to inform how we treat our patients. Because most of the clinicians who work in aesthetics are getting the vaccine before their patients. So it's going to be very useful for you guys to know how to communicate to your patients about the risk, the risk factors that may be important, the ones you can control. And of course, how do you go forward and actually deliver treatments in a safer way with the information that we've got? And how do you talk to your patients about the topic in a way that is appropriately angled? So not too scaremongering and also um, full of quality, good advice. It's actually practical. I'm hoping that with this show, we can give you some real practical steps that you can use in your day-to-day -day practice to make your patients feel well looked after and give you some certainty going forward. So why did we do this survey? So this all, just in case you don't remember, and we do have another show on this if you want to watch, go back and watch it, but essentially there was the Moderna trial which highlighted uh, three cases of potential filler reaction. One of them was actually in the placebo arm. Some of those patients have been treated before and one had treatment quite soon after. Um, but out of 33,000, uh, they had three cases of inflammation, facial inflammation, uh, related to the timing of the vaccine. And this is what got us all focused on this particular issue. So what's going on with these reactions? So it's important just to remember what a vaccine is. Just to recap, vaccines are designed to generate an inflammatory response from the immune system. So there is no surprise at all that if you're generating an inflammatory response that it may cause side effects. In fact, virtually all the side effects I've ever seen attributed to vaccines are due to this intended inflammatory response and it's not a big surprise if you know the mechanism and we already know about delayed onset nodules with dermal fillers that a percentage of people are likely to um, respond to the vaccine but also then have a a corresponding reaction that may be associated with their dermal filler so the 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 actual basis of it is not surprising at all but we do need to know the size of the risk so that we can uh, operate more safely going into this into this period so what are the questions about the vaccine and potential filler reactions that practitioners need to know? So I'm thinking uh, all the clinicians, particularly in the UK, are gearing up to open as lockdown lifts. Um, and there's a cohort of patients who are about to ex be exposed to vaccines. Some already have been exposed, but also there's a lot of people trying to book in and have treatment. So we, we need to somehow logically manage this process. So one of the things I want to know first as a clinician is what is the chances of this happening to all the patients that I've treated over the last year or, or even longer? Um, because that's going to that's gonna give me some ballpark idea of 
how concerned I need to be about those follow-ups that might come from patients I may not have even seen for six months. So uh, it's the total risk of it happening to patients who've already had treatment. I also want to be able to communicate with my future patients. I want those patients who are having a consultation, I want them to be able to um, feel certain about the advice they're getting from me. So I need to have a good explanation of what the risk is, how the filler and the vaccine are related, and what their chances of being affected by the, the particular interactions are. Because if you're a clinician providing advice for a patient, there's nothing more trust-building than having a really good response to these questions that involve uncertainty and risk. So um, that's what I'm hoping to help you guys with today, is that you have a much clearer narrative when you talk to your patients. Um, now, we need to also plan ahead and you need some rules. So we need to see if we can use some of this data and the other data that's available to give some guidance about how long we need to leave our patients untreated for, you know, what's a safe period of time, what procedures should you or shouldn't you do uh, around about the time of a vaccine. And of course, how are we actually going to react to those patients who do have the reaction? So what's the treatment? What's the best course of action when your patient rings you and they've just had the vaccine and they're now saying they have a little bit of swelling? What do you do next? So tell us about the survey. So we um, emailed our list and we got a response of around 1,800 people who came to the page and started filling in the survey. 300 of those people did not complete the survey. So we had a response of 1,503 people. Um, we tried to select for clinicians only. So everywhere in the copy was this is geared towards clinicians, which may be useful in, in, in interpreting the results. Um, and that was the first step. From that survey, we established, first of all, that of all those people on the survey, 78% of them had had dermal filler and 21% had never had dermal filler, which is also interesting in itself. Um, I know my audience is 90% female and 10% male, so I'm not sure, obviously, how this works in terms of the survey because we didn't get people's sexes, um, but that gives you also something else to interpret the data with. Uh, we asked what filler that the, those clinicians had had, and this is similar to what you may have already seen in some of our output, which is that around about 33% of the market is the Allegan brand. So of that, 13% is Juvenum Ultra, and 20% of treatments were done with the Juvedem Vicross range. The next biggest brand is Tiasil or Tioxane, um, and that is 14.8% of our respondents who had that filler in the past. Um, then came Restylane at 11.46%, um, and then we get into the much smaller ones. Followed, the next one is Mertz at 6%, and you can have a look. We'll put the, the uh, pie chart on the screen so you can have a look at that distribution. But that's that's a good idea a good kind of ballpark of how to interpret what filler is in most people's faces as they um, have their vaccine. It's about 75% made up of the big three that we all know. Okay, so uh, the next question we had was um, how many people have actually had the vaccine? So of our respondents, 51% had not yet had the vaccine and 48% had the vaccine. So that was also useful that we had roughly two populations to look at. I think because we surveyed healthcare practitioners, most people knew which vaccine they had. Only 0.8% didn't know which vaccine they had been injected with. And the Pfizer biotech vaccine made up for 70%, 77% of respondents. The next biggest cohort was the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, and that was 13.3%. And then the Moderna vaccine made 8.79% of the respondents, with just 0.8% not knowing. So the next most important question of is of all those people. Um, what percentage of them had a reaction? 
And we found out that in our cohort, 96% of people did not report facial swelling and 3.7% did have facial swelling after their vaccination. So that's a nice small number I think we can all cope with. We'll talk about these numbers in a bit more detail, but um, I'm fairly reassured by that. The next really interesting question that we got to was how long after the procedure did they have the swelling? So once you've had your vaccination, when did they notice swelling starting? This is obviously of the people who reported swelling. Um, and 15% noticed it within hours, which is a bit sooner than I thought would have thought. So 15% reported an immediate response. Um, then 46% had swelling within the next 48 hours. Now that's probably where I would have expected most people to see a difference. Uh, and then within one week, another 30%. And then within a month, 7% of more people were added to that list of people who experienced swelling. And nobody reported swelling a month after the vaccine. Um, the next really interesting question, and this will really help you formulate your anticipated response to this, is what percentage of people who had swelling thought they needed medical treatment? So these are obviously healthcare professionals. Um, now this may affect them in, in either way. Maybe they have a higher tolerance to side effects, but also they may have a, a an easier access to medication if they need it. So I think on balance, it's probably a bit more likely that we're a bit more likely to treat ourselves, but we'll never know for sure. But the data suggests that only 34% of the people who had swelling required medical treatment. And that means 65% of them got better without any intervention. And that's a very useful number, a ballpark of what to expect for your patients. We also thought we would look at the risk factors. So we all know that any inflammatory state could be a risk factor for a reaction to dermal filler. So we also looked at people's, um, the incidence of allergies and the incidence of autoimmune disease. Uh, and this really highlighted some interesting correlations there as well, which we will go into. Did the AstraZeneca, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines perform differently in terms of how many filler reactions they caused? Well, yes, that's probably the most for me, one of the most interesting aspects of this is trying to see if there's a difference between different vaccines. And um, two of them are very similar, and one of them stands out. And this is interesting because it's the one that we first heard about that seems to have a higher percentage. So the Moderna vaccine had a reaction rate of 11.7%, um, whereas the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine was only 4.1%, and the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine was 3.1%. I think there's probably statistically no difference between the other two, but I, I think there probably is a statistical difference with the Moderna vaccine. So what these percentages represent is the percentage chance that your patient who is having a vaccine has of a reaction according to our data. So they've already had their filler three weeks ago, and they're having an injection with the Moderna vaccine. The data would su suggest a chance of about 11% of that patient having a reaction with Moderna, 3.1% with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, and the Oxford-AstraZeneca represented a 4.1% risk. Now, these numbers are all very small, I must caveat, that we're only talking about people reporting, you know, only eight cases out of 68 or three cases out of 73. So the randomness that's built into any data could sway these numbers a considerable amount. Um, but it does seem like the Moderna vaccine has a higher risk than the others. How about the different filler brands? Did they impact the numbers of people having reactions? So probably the most controversial element all of this will be if one company seems to have a higher risk than the others and you can all breathe a sigh of relief because they seem to be in a similar ballpark. But let me talk you through the data and you can make up your own mind. 
The first thing before I give you the actual numbers is to remember that with the filler types, there were so many different filler types that the numbers get quite small when you look at individual risks. And this can easily distort the the seeming that the number that seems to come out at the end. So for example, our highest risk number seemed to be calcium hydroxyapatite or RADIS with a 10% risk of reaction. But only 10 people had that filler in the survey and one of them had inflammation. So it only took one person to report swelling for that to be bumped all the way up. And we also don't 100% know that people have only had one particular filler. I don't think many people do stick with just one brand for a lifetime. So do interpret that data in that context. Um, So small numbers make a big difference and things can swing wildly. So let's go through in alphabetical order the percentage risk that we got for each dermal filler with the pool of patients who reacted. So Bellatero reported 2 out of 27 cases, so that's 6.9%. Juvederm, that's the standard range of Juvederm, was 2 out of 85, that's 2.3%. Restylane was 3 out of 63, that's 4.55%. Tioxane reported a 5 out of 93 reaction rate of 5.1%. The Vicross range, also from from Juvederm, was 8 out of 129, which is 6.2%, and then Radies at 1 out of 10, which is 10%. So just remember, there's very little statistical difference between those, and the statistical difference that is there is likely due to small numbers, because small changes make big differences in percentages, and the average risk for all those patients was 4%. What about the patients themselves? If they had an autoimmune disease, were they reacting more? So, yeah, so one of the patient risk factors that we looked at, as well as um, immune reactions generally, so allergic reactions, is autoimmune reactions. And we all know there are potential risks for delayed onset nodules, but how big is that risk? So this is one of the first times I've seen a relative risk um, come out of some data. And what I can say is that of the patients who had no autoimmune disease, 21 of them had a reaction. And that made a number of 3.2%. So 3.2% chance, if you don't have an autoimmune disease, of reacting to the filler. Of the, of the patients who said they did have an autoimmune disease, 6.4% of them had reacted after having the vaccine uh, to the filler. So this is a, a pro- almost exactly double the chance of reacting if you have pre-existing autoimmune disease, which is interesting in itself. How about allergies? So allergies uh, were also very interesting. And what we found is in our pool of of 60 people who said that they had significant allergies, five of them reacted to when the vaccine came, where their filler was placed, and that was 8.3%. Whereas the pool of people who said they didn't have allergic reactions to anything had swelling uh, were only 3.7%. So this is also um, over double the risk when they have a pre-existing allergic condition. So we've got a pool of people who've had the vaccine, have had filler, and they're reporting or not a facial reaction. Obviously, we have facial reactions from filler anyway. So what's the comparison between the data we have now and, say, last year's data? Yeah, I thought it would be very important to try and get an understanding of what the background level of inflammatory nodules are, at least within our survey results, because that's going to help you um, compare the numbers relatively, because um, there's always a chance people are getting reactions to filler all year long. They get coughs and colds and have allergic reactions all the time. Now we're adding something new to it. We need to understand that in context. And what we discovered is that um, before people had had the vaccine, 
Um, in the previous 12 months, we asked, 120 people reported swelling, which is a risk of 9% chance of, of inflammation before the vaccine. So that's quite a useful number to understand what the risk is over a year. And then we can have a look at what the risk is after the vaccine with a bit more understanding of, of what the total risk is. I'm a bit confused, though, because if 9% of people react in a non-vaccine situation and only 4% are reaction, reacting in the vaccine. So this is 9% over the entire year. And there's some big methodological limitations here because I don't think most people will remember the exact date that they had a reaction and then check back on the calendar and make sure they're only reporting stuff that happened in a 12-month block. So it's probably not the most accurate. Uh, some people will forget reactions that they had and others will throw in reactions that happened two years ago. So um, it's not perfect. But if you were to suggest that it is roughly about right, um, we've got 9% over the whole year. And you could divide that up by 12 is about 0.8% risk each month um, that, uh. of having a reaction. So in the in the two weeks or the month after you've had the vaccine, you now have a risk of 4% um, of reacting. Right. It's, it's, a, it's roughly four times higher than the average month. But it's not a hundred times higher. So this is a this is a rough increase um, that you could put down to the vaccine. Remembering, of course, that also most of these things probably happen from viral infections, and the average person has a viral infection three to four times per year. So you could almost imagine that that nine percent is uh, is roughly two and a half percent a quarter. Um, and uh, the other interesting thing I found out is that women are more likely to have viral infections as probably due to their relationship with their closer relationship with children on average. Um, and that, that they're also our patients on average, 90% of, of aesthetic clients are female. Mm. And so we're, we're, you know, we're r roughly going to have a, a high exposure to viruses in our in the population. Um, and you can compare those together and say, it looks like a higher concentration of risk, but it's not an order of magnitude different to what a cough or a cold would do. That's, right. that's what I take from it, is that we're not talking 100 times more risk. This is the same rough ballpark as what would happen if you, get a, if you were to go out into the wild and get an infection, um, a rhinovirus. You may also have a reaction. So it's that kind of risk. And most people don't react to their fellow after they have a virus. It's only, as, we, as we're seeing, it's only a small percentage. What percentage of people who'd had filler, had the vaccine and had a reaction were requiring treatment? So this is also a very useful number to know because um, it's good for clinicians to be aware that not everyone who calls you after having some inflammation is going to need treatment. Um, and you shouldn't necessarily rush to the pharmacy cupboard every time someone has a side effect. Because what we found in this cohort of mainly clinicians is that only 28% of them thought they required treatment. So that means 70% of your patients are not going to require intervention from you. Um, if this data is correct and the decisions made were wise, which I trust they were, um, then we are mainly going to reassure and observe and give patients a chance over the next 48 hours for them to recover on their own. That's probably what we need for the average patient. So for those 30% who did have treatment, what should clinicians watching this be doing with their patients who have a reaction to the vaccine? Well, first of all, I, I would suggest that you go into it with a light touch approach where possible. Um, now, what that means is we try try your best to do nothing um, because the patients will normally recover on their own. And then as you work up the scale of treatment, start with simple things. So if, if it's safe to prescribe an anti-inflammatory, that would be fine. You could then use an antihistamine as well. Obviously, you go higher up the scale until you're prescribing steroids. 
there is a little bit of question mark around whether steroids could blunt in the effect of the vaccine. Um, I don't think it's very well studied in the situation. We're still vaccinating people who take steroids, of course. Um, but at the same time, um, you wouldn't want to interfere with the potential benefit if you could help it. So um, th this really needs to be made on a patient by patient basis. It's very important not to treat patients just as an illness. There's a lot of kind of what does the evidence say, um, but the evidence always ignores the psychosocial impact. And if you have a patient who's incredibly distraught with their swelling, you could decide it's better that I treat them in their particular case. This is what the medical model would, would tell us all to do. You make an individual assessment based on the complexity of that patient about how much you need, how far you need to go in terms of treating them. And, um, uh, but but it's very individual. But the general principle is as little intervention as possible is probably better. Because it gives the vaccine a chance to actually do its thing. Well, mainly because you probably don't need it. Mm. And secondly, because, yes, you may affect the mo more important thing is that the population gets vaccinated and that individual is protected from it as well. So if I'm a clinician and I'm advising my patients how long to leave it between having their filler and their vaccination, what would you say? Well, the first thing to know is if your patient has had some filler in the previous three to six months, it's very hard to say that that they're act you're actually going to change their risk much by not treating them now mm. because the fill is already in their system. So there is that to, to weigh up. Um, but there are some very practical things I want to make as well because you can get very scientific about these things and say, you know, there's no data to support not treating uh, and then encourage your patients to have treatment. And guess what? Humans are not necessarily rational. And if you've got a population who is slightly cautious or let's say even um, a little bit suspicious of vaccines and then you expose them to another stressful situation of having a treatment, you may end up having to deal with the flack of someone who's irrationally responding to the treatment. So it makes a, it's a really good tip to keep things simple in their mind, even if in your mind it's not necessary. I will often do things that put the patient in a good psychological state for the treatment. So um, leaving that space, even though the science says you may not need it, might be in your best interest with certain patients. Do so, you mean, I don't think I quite understand. Do you mean that they might be a little bit sus about vaccinations anyway? They've had it, but they're a bit worried about it. Then you do a filler the next day. They might put two and two together and blame you. Yeah, so you're looking for cautious or anxious patients and taking into account their anxiety rather than just the data. Because mm. if you've got an anxious patient who's worried about the vaccine, then you need them to choose a time when they feel like, okay, I've had the vaccine, it's not mm -hmm. going to react anymore. And, and you would obviously educate them at that point. You know, I think that the bulk of the inflammatory response, the benefit you get from a vaccine is in the first three weeks. So anything after that, there's a reasonable scientific case that is not going to be related. Um, but if I had a patient who was not taking that information on board, I might say, look, it may not be a good time for you to have the treatment until you're not worrying about it. Because, because yes, it absolutely, if you get a very anxious patient, doesn't matter what you say to them, they can obsess over this and you can end up with a very stressed patient, worry about a reaction that's nothing to do with um, the science. So how long would you leave it between filler and vaccination? So there's, the science suggests there are a couple of ways of looking at this. There's the infl inflammatory markers, um, after the process um, you can measure and that seems to be around about 42 weeks um, there was a study which I saw in from the ACE group publication uh, Martin King I think wrote about um, an Israeli study where they looked at how long after having the vaccine did and were antibodies produced and it seems to be the first three weeks so you know that the immune system is at least learning in those three weeks 
and and that also seems like a reasonable place to draw the to draw the boundary. Um, so if you want to be really safe, it's three weeks from the date of the vaccine. Don't interfere. Um, if they already have had a treatment that's already in their system, there's not much you can do. And and I I think the before is you really just want to limit the chance of there being inflammation at the time of the treatment because if you're already inflamed from a, a procedure. Um, and then you have the vaccine and you get inflammation, it's going to be worse. And there's going to be that mental connection between the two. So the guidelines there, I think I've seen some say three weeks. For me, the average patient, it's two weeks. They, you probably can't tell that you've had a treatment two weeks after. And so two weeks before and two weeks after seem like a reasonable safety net for me. So do you, just to be clear, if I, let's say I get my filler on the 12th of April, and then I get the call to come and have my vaccine, am I to turn that call down? Um, no, I, you, we absolutely shouldn't be changing the vaccine schedule according to our treatments. Um, you may, you could delay it. I, I think if you've, if they call you and say you, you can come and book your vaccine, you've just had a treatment, you probably won't want to want to go next day, the next day. Um, so, um, but so just leave, you know, 10 days from that date, because I'm assuming it's the day after or, or more. So a couple of weeks after there's no inflammation left, then you have the vaccine. You're, you're in the same risk pool as everyone else really. So what are the take-homes from this survey? So take-homes from this for me are only about 1% of your patients who've had dermal filler are going to need your attention in terms of a medical intervention, such as a prescription, after they have the vaccine. So it's a very small number. You shouldn't be overwhelmed by them. The next thing is that three weeks is probably the longest logical period to wait between having the vaccine and having a dermal filler treatment. Um, but two weeks is probably reasonable too, given the data that we have. There is no connection between botulinum toxin and reactions with the vaccine, but you may still choose to leave the same gap to keep things simple in your patient's mind. But there is no scientific reason not to treat your patients. We do tend to choose times to treat when there is no inflammation, though. So it's still reasonable to leave that gap, but no data to cause concern. The next significant take-home I got from our survey is that there is no significant difference between the brands of dermal filler, certainly none we could detect in our survey, so you don't need to have a particular cohort or under more scrutiny than the next. They should all be in the same ballpark. Next, we did seem to detect a significant risk with the Moderna vaccine over the rest, so roughly double the risk. Um, still a relatively small overall risk for your individual patients, but there does seem to be a difference between the vaccines. The final and probably most important fact I'd like to throw in there is that most patients get better without any intervention. So 70% of your patients who do have a reaction will recover on their own and only about 4% of your entire population, if they follow the data in our survey, are likely to get any reaction at all. Okay, and if you would like to download the survey results, maybe have a look at them in more detail, they are available in the link below. If you'd like to maybe even try and publish one of your own studies, let us know and we would love to see what you create with that data um, and we can discuss it with you later on. Let us know in the comments below if you found that useful and please do subscribe to the channel because we upload weekly on a Thursday lots of amazing new content to help you in your practice. Thanks for watching. Take care.